Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. John 4, verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then come the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Father, this time of year when it's the only time that many people even think about Christ, I pray that you would take these words from these clay lips and you would let them go forth into everyone's heart that is in here and bear great fruit this morning. Asking Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Peter Marshall, who was the chaplain of the United States Senate in the 1940s, wrote a famous parable called The Keeper of the Springs. I'd like to open with that this morning. Once upon a time, a certain town grew up at the foot of a mountain range. It was sheltered in the shelter of the protecting heights, so that the wind that shuddered at the doors and flung handfuls of sleet against the window panes was a wind whose fury was spent. High up in the hills, a strange and quiet forest dweller took it upon himself to be the keeper of the springs. He patrolled the hills, and whenever he found a spring, he cleaned its brown pool of silt and fallen leaves, of mud and mold, and took away from the spring all foreign matter, so that the water which bubbled up through the sand ran down clean and cold and pure. It leaped sparkling over rocks and dropped joyously in crystal cascades until, swollen by other streams, it became a river of life to the busy town. Mill wheels were rotated by its rush. Gardens were refreshed by its waters. Fountains threw it like diamonds into the air. Swans sailed on its limpid surface and children laughed as they played in its banks in the sunshine. But the city council was a group of hard-headed businessmen. 
they scanned the civic budget and found in the salary of a keeper of the springs. Said the keeper of the purse, Why should we pay this ranger? We never see him, and he's not necessary to our town's work life. If we build a reservoir just above the town, we can dispense with his services and save his salary. Therefore, the city council voted to dispense with the unnecessary cost of a keeper of the springs and to build a cement reservoir. So the keeper of the springs no longer visited the brown pools but watched from the heights while they built the reservoir. When it was finished, it soon filled up with water to be sure, but the water did not seem to be the same. It did not seem to be as clean, and a green scum soon befouled its stagnant surface. There were constant troubles with the delicate machinery of the mills, for it was often clogged with slime, and the swans found another home above the town. At last, an epidemic raged, and the clammy yellow fingers of sickness reached into every home and every street and lane. The city council met again. Sorrowfully, it faced the city's plight, and frankly, it acknowledged the mistake of the dismissal of the keeper of the springs. They sought him out of his hermit hut high in the hills and begged him to return to his former joyous labor. Gladly he agreed and once more began to make his rounds. It was not long until pure water came lilting down under tunnels of ferns and mosses and a sparkle in the cleansed reservoir. Mill wheels turned again as of old. Sickness disappeared. Sickness also waned and convalescent children playing in the sun laughed again because the swans had come back. When I read that, it reminded me of our text this morning. Like the keeper of the spring, sometimes our service in the kingdom of God can go unappreciated. The only difference is, unlike the parable, we are to keep working in the fields no matter how we are perceived. Because we are not under a board of directors, but under God himself. Look at verse 30 with me. Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Sometimes when I read about the disciples, it gives me great hope. As I see, they were even completely clueless on many occasions. I bet if Jesus would have been on Facebook back then and chronicled his days with the disciples, there would have been a lot of face plant and shake my head emojis. I imagine the disciples were more concerned about lunch than some obscure Samaritan woman. Maybe you've been there. Have you ever been out at a restaurant and you're ready to eat, but everyone is talking and having a great time? But you are hungry, and so what do you do? You say, well, someone please bless this food so we can eat. And if you're being honest, you don't want some long, drawn-out prayer. You know the kind that I mean. When they pray for the missionaries in Czechoslovakia and Cousin Mildred's ingrown toenail. You want a prayer like, Lord, where you lead me, I will follow, and what you feed me, I will swallow. That's kind of what is happening here, I think. 
These disciples feel like they can't eat until Jesus is ready to eat, and so they say, Rabbi, eat. We are hungry, and so would you please just pray? As an aside, I know what that's like. There are people sitting among us this very morning who have told me they have invited me places just so I could bless the food. You know who you are. Look at verse 34 with me. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Before the incarnation, Jesus declared through David in Psalm 40, verse 7, Here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. To do that, Jesus had to assume our humanity. He was born in Bethlehem and raised in the dirty little town of Nazareth and grew up in a carpenter shop of his earthly stepfather, Joseph. In time, he began his teaching ministry, a ministry that took him throughout all the towns and villages. And during these years, he looked ahead to the cross, which loomed ever larger before him. Finally, just before his crucifixion, he prayed in the garden. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you have sent me to do. Jesus did not look on the Father's will as a heavy burden or a distasteful task. He viewed his work as the very nourishment of his soul. Doing the Father's will fed him and satisfied him inwardly. Now, Peter and John and the others thought on the purely literal level, as Nicodemus and the woman had both done before. Thus, they began to wonder if someone had brought him food during their absence. At this point, Jesus replied that the food he was talking about was not physical, but spiritual. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is a great sentence. It is even a golden sentence as C.H. Spurgeon once described it. In essence, these words are an expression of what was undoubtedly the focus of his life, telling us that above all else, he lived to do God's will. Moreover, this tells us that doing God's will gave Jesus complete satisfaction. Philip Brooks once said, Seek your life's nourishment in your life's work. That's great advice. The will of God ought to be a source of strength and satisfaction to the child of God, just as if they sat down to a sumptuous feast. The verse also leads us to the second point in our study. For Jesus did not only say, my food is to know the will of him who sent me. That is important enough, but it's only part of the story. He actually said, my food is to, and here's the important word, do the will of him who sent me. This is important for us. For it is often true that even when the will of God is revealed to us, we sometimes fail to do it. At one point in his ministry, Jesus told a story involving a father and two of his sons. The father owned a vineyard. He came to his first son and said, Son, go work for me today in my vineyard. The first son said, No, I won't. But afterward he repented and then went. The father came to the second son and gave the identical instructions. This son said, sure, I'll be glad to work in your vineyard. 
but then he failed to go. Jesus asked those listening to him, which of the two did the will of the Father? When they pointed out that it was the first of the sons, in spite of the fact that he initially had refused, Jesus then showed that this was precisely the contrast between the religious leaders of his day who were always saying yes to God, but who were not obeying him, and the sinners of his day who initially disobeyed, but after that repented. The contrast is still valid this morning. Do we say yes, but then not do what God instructs us to do? Or do we do his will and not merely just talk about it? Have you you ever prayed to know God's will, surrendering yourself to him as best as you know how? Then you received his answer. But then you had a heavy feeling as you grumpily set out to do as he directed. If so, aren't we acting like the little girl who wrote to her grandmother to thank her for her Christmas present? She wrote, Dear Grandma, thank you for the pincushion. I've always wanted a pincushion, but not very much. We can all be like that. We say, thank you, Lord, for having a will for my life. I've always wanted your will for my life. Yet if we are honest, sometimes we are forced to admit, but not very much. We want to be completely devoted-ish. Thus it is for many people that one of the great steps in their spiritual growth comes when their will is first surrendered to the will of God. And they are enabled, as Jesus was enabled, to say, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Finally, Jesus did not merely say, My food is to know the will of him who sent me, or even my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He took it to its completeness by saying, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Unfortunately, many people begin the work but they fail to finish it. One of my prayers is, I want to finish well. I hope yours is also. Verse 35, please. Do you not say there are still four months and then come the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. One commentator had this observation. The disciples had only to lift up their eyes and look at the Samaritans coming towards them. Their white clothing forming a striking contrast against the brilliant green of the ripening grain and looking like white heads on the stalks that indicated the time for harvest. Jesus is going to teach us that the harvest is not dependent upon any one person or ministry. One of the ways we keep score is by comparison. We basically engage in three types of comparison. Some people compare their situation to those who are better off. That is upward comparison. 
Some people compare their situation to people who are worse off. That's downward comparison. And then there are those who compare themselves with those who are at the same level. That's lateral comparison. But here's the thing. Each type carries dangers. The first incites envy, the second arrogance, and the third competition. Sometimes soul winning is only focused on the person that actually led a sinner to repent and accept Christ. But here Jesus tells us that no part of the salvation process is more important than the other. You may not lead the person in the sinner's prayer, but it was your fasting and prayers and witnessing that made them ripe for the harvest for someone else. No one can purely understand how all of that works. Listen to how Jesus describes it in Mark chapter 4. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows how? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop ripens, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now, does the farmer understand all the science of how that happens? No. It is simply God above his creation giving, him main, giving life by maintaining his creation. In him we live and move and have our being. So Jesus is saying in verse 28 of that chapter that the soil produces the crop all by itself. Incidentally, the Greek word there for by, its, by itself is spelled A-U-T-O-M-A-T-A, automata. Guess what word we get from that? Automatic. Something is automatic when it just happens on its own. Verse 29 says that when the crop ripens, it grows, and then it is taken up into the harvest. This is also a picture of the Christian life. We come to life, we grow, and then one day we are taken to glory. The thing is that we have to keep in mind is the seed you sow today will not produce crop until later. For this reason, your identity does not lie in your current results. This is not who you are. In reality, your current results are who you were. Verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had came to him, they urged him to come stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. If you've been with us the whole time that we follow this story, you know of the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. But now, because of this woman's testimony, they have accepted this Jew as the Savior of the world. One commentator adds, To the Jews belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. That is simply a fact of human history. On one occasion, when Daniel O'Connell, a 19th century Irish politician, 
taunted the great English statesman Benjamin Disraeli in the House of Commons about him being a Jew? Disraeli replied, Yes, I am a Jew. And when the ancestors of this right honorable gentleman were brutal savages in an unknown island, mine were priests in the Temple of Solomon and were giving law and religion to the world. It was a just rebuke. For centuries, the true light of divine revelation was confined to Judaism. Now, however, through Jesus, the light of God's law and true religion has come to us Gentiles also. Have you recognized that he came to be your light? If you allow him to do so, he will use that light first to reveal the darkness of your heart and life to you, and then to lead you in the light of his truth and righteousness. And then, like the Samaritan woman, you can lead others to that light. In his book, Is Your Church Ready?, Robbie Zacharias shares this story. He writes, Some time ago I was visiting Greece. To this day, at the base of Mars Hill, is a huge bronze plaque with the words of Paul's address to the Stoics and Epicureans memorialized for us in Acts chapter 17. Paul begins with this statement. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's point of entry was where his listeners were in their own thinking, and while his goal was to expose their intellectual failure, he began by affirming their spiritual hunger. Step by step, Paul proceeded from their need to one who is omniscient, God is revealed in Christ. Paul was keenly aware of his context, and with compelling relevance, he applied the truth of the gospel. Robbie finishes by writing, We are told that just a few men and one woman made a commitment to Christ that day. But the astonishing thing is, one is taken aback to see the name of the main street that runs alongside Mars Hill. It is named after Dionysius the Areopagite, who made his commitment to Christ after Paul's message. 2,000 years later, the hill on the street stands as a tribute to a message and its recipient. I like that. And while we may never have a street named after us, we can be used to point others to the light. Before we look at the phrase, Savior of the world, we need to look at a very important word, and that word is world. In Greek, the word is cosmos. By the way, you get the word cosmetics from this word. Do you know what the word cosmetic literally means? It means to bring order out of chaos. This is why God invented makeup. Hey, at least you girls can do something about it. Us guys are just stuck with being ugly. But anyway, the word cosmos occurs about 185 times in the New Testament. But what is highly significant for our study is that 105 out of those 185 occurrences are in the books attributed to John. The word cosmos occurs 78 times in the Gospel of John, 
24 times in John's epistles and three times in the book of Revelation. We get a sense of how unusual John's use of that word is when we realize that Matthew uses the word only eight times and it occurs just three times in each of the Gospels of Mark and Luke. In other words, we are dealing here with one of the great concepts in the Gospel of John. He wants us to understand that Jesus is the Savior of the entire world. He is the Lamb of God. For thousands of years, men lived with a basic one lamb for one person institution. The time came when the Jews were in slavery in Egypt and God was about to bring them out and lead them into their own land. At this time, God initiated the Passover. Each family in Israel was to take a lamb and examine it for defects. Only a perfect lamb could be chosen. After three days on the night of the Passover, the lamb was to be killed and eaten, and its blood was to be spread over the lintel and the side posts of the door of the house as a sign to the angel of death to pass over the house as it went through Egypt, slaying the firstborn that night. One lamb for a person. But here God revealed it could also be one lamb for a family. The exodus took place, and several months later, the people were at Mount Sinai, where God gave them the law. And the law were the instructions for the Day of Atonement, on which the high priest was to kill a lamb for the nation, and then take its blood within the veil of the Holy of Holies, where it was sprinkled on the mercy seat underneath the cherubim. And so here was the progression. One lamb for one person. One lamb for one family. And then one lamb for one nation. But then Jesus came, and it was John's role to identify him as one lamb for the entire world. Perhaps the most amazing thing is he died for us even when we were hostile to him. What did men do when Jesus appeared as the light? Men rejected the light. What did men do when he appeared as the lamb? Men crucified the lamb. What did men do when Jesus appeared as the great and supreme manifestation of God's love? Men hated that love and despised it. Had he not initiated salvation, no one would ever be saved. There's an illustration of this basic fact about the Lord Jesus in one of the books by Watchman Nee, who was a famous Chinese evangelist. Nee had been talking to another Christian in that man's home. They were downstairs, as was the friend's young son. The friend's wife and mother were in an upstairs room. All at once, the little boy wanted something and called out for his mother for it. It's up here, she said. Come up here and get it. But the boy cried out to her, I can't, Mummy. It's such a long way. Please bring it down to me. So the mother picked up what he wanted and brought it down to him. It is just that way with salvation. No one is able to meet their own needs spiritually. But the Lord Jesus came down to us so our need could be met. Nee writes, Had he not come, sinners could not have approached him, but he came down in order to lift them up. Just to recap what we've learned this morning, doing God's will, faithfully, zealously, 
despite the absence of any tangible rewards, is a worthy goal and a colossal success in and of itself. It is not a matter primarily of whether or not we reach any particular goals we may have set. Life is more than just reaching our goals. As individuals and as a church, we need to reach not just our goals, but our potential. Nothing else is good enough. We must always be reaching toward our potential in Christ. Nearly 200 years ago, there were two Scottish brothers named John and David Livingston. John had set his mind on making money and becoming wealthy, and he did. But under his name, in an old edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, John Livingston is simply listed as the brother of David Livingston. And who was David Livingston? While John had dedicated himself to making money, David had knelt and prayed, surrendering himself to Christ, he resolved, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. The inscription over his burial place in Westminster Abbey reads, For 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize. On his 59th birthday, David Livingston wrote, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. That, my beloved, is the recipe for a life well lived. And I pray, God, that you would do that to every heart that is in this room this morning. I pray the same thing every week, Lord, because I don't know a better prayer to pray. You alone know where, where we all are. All of us need you in different ways. But I, all, I know, Lord, that we all need you. And I pray, Lord, you would make yourself real as never before to all of us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We won't be having a uh, closing song, so greet one another and love each other. <laughs>